Fraud Pod. Hello, listener, and thank you so much for joining us on this 47th edition of the Teaching Abroad Pod. I'm your host, Rowan Lomas, and joining me again this week as co-host is my colleague, Ashley, from our operations department. How are things going with you, Ashley? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me back. Uh, So we do have an interview coming up shortly, as you know, with one of our more experienced TESOL course instructors who's been teaching the course since way back in 2006. He's got quite a teaching resume, having taught in some eight countries on five continents. But before we get to Brian, I noticed you taught at one of the same language schools as he did in Japan, likely a few years after him. But how did you like living in Japan? Um, Japan is an amazing country. It would be very easy to become overwhelmed at the idea of traveling um, and further living and working in a country where you may not know the native language. Um, Little things like reading road signs, ingredient lists on boxes at the store. Um, But I have to say that more often than not, there's an accommodation for English speakers everywhere you look be it sometimes poorly translated signs um, or plastic versions of dishes at restaurants for you to reference when you're ordering. Even people going out of their way to practice their English to communicate with you, um, it very quickly becomes less daunting. Plastic versions of dishes. (laughs) Genius. I I don't know if I've experienced those uh, in Korea. I couldn't understand some of the words on the menu. I just rely on the pictures in the menu, which usually worked out fine. But I will not forget the time I ordered what looked like some saucy, delicious dish based on the picture, and it turned out to be chicken feet. And it was awful. So I do not recommend chicken feet from the menu. Luckily, I have not had an experience like that. Um, I I will forever be grateful um, for my colleagues and roommates who had already been there for some time and could kind of walk me through it a little bit. Thought of poorly translated signs cracks me up too. There was this skating rink at Seoul Olympic Park we went to one winter, and there was a giant sign like in flashing lights that read, Helpy Christmas. <laughs> What's that even mean? How How is it helpy? you're at a skating rink I don't know it was very confusing or the t-shirts you see on kids many of which are not safe for work type stuff like just google bad English hurts Korea and be prepared for some some wacky stuff yeah they are a plenty I will agree anyways before we get to our interview with Brian here's a quick word from our sponsor With Oxford Seminars, starting your new career teaching ESL couldn't be easier. Oxford Seminars has trained more than 70,000 teachers over the past 30 years, and you could be next. Our comprehensive 120-hour program starts with live instruction from an experienced ESL teacher, followed by convenient online modules. If your goal is to relocate overseas or even teach from the comfort of your own home, Oxford Seminars' renowned lifetime job placement service will get you where you want to be. Right now, you can get $50 off your Oxford Seminars TESOL TESOL TEFL course price when paying in full by calling 1-888-225-2480 and giving the code TEACHINGABROADPOD. Visit OxfordSeminars.com today to find out more. So welcome back, listeners. We are now joined by TESOL course instructor Brian Fox, who has been training teachers through Oxford Seminars since back in 2006. He has a bachelor's degree 
and two master's degrees, including a master of arts in applied linguistics and TESOL from Melbourne University in Australia. He has instructed all ages and levels in various school types from language schools to universities in numerous locations, including Australia, Colombia, Iraq, Japan, Korea, Spain, Poland, the United States, and online. Welcome to the pod, Brian. Hello. Thanks for having me. So you've obviously uh, taught in a lot of different countries. If there were one or two that really stood out to you as a can't miss live and teach location, what would they be? I think it's hard for me to separate the country from the experience I had in the country, which sounds kind of silly and self-evident. But I mean, I, like everyone in the world, enjoyed my time in Barcelona immensely. Um, you know, but I also enjoyed being 25 immensely. And that's when I was in Barcelona. So that's kind of part of it. But I would highly recommend traveling to Spain, spending time in Spain if you can, um, living there if that's possible. So certainly that. And also, I mean, I would say in a, in a, in a similar vein, I would say something roughly equivalent about living in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, it's not a top TESOL destination because depending on who you ask, Australians do speak English. And um, I happened to be I happened to be there as an undergrad before I started teaching in the 90s. And then I found out that they were offering a master's in TESOL at a time when I needed a master's in TESOL to further my career. So I went back there in 2011 and was able to teach full time on my student V. Well, full-ish time on my student visa while I was doing my master's. So I'm the rare person from the United States who actually taught English in Australia, not to Australians. But I mean, Melbourne regularly wins, you know, top 10, or it's, it's, it's always in the top 10 cities and the, the most livable cities in the world for a reason. It's a wonderful city. But I will say, you know, I love Tokyo. I mean, Japan is a fascinating place. It was my first destination. And so in a way, I didn't have as much to, you know, compare it to, but I've, I've visited Tokyo since, you know, I lived there in the 90s. That was my, my first, first job. Um, I've been back since, and I still really enjoy that city. I think it, it has a certain energy that is very difficult to, to replicate in other places. And Bogota as well, you know, Colombia is a fascinating place. It's not something, it's not a place that's maybe at the top of a lot of sort of new teachers lists of places to go. Um, it can be a difficult place to make ends meet, you know, financially because it's not the, the highest salaries. But that being said, if you get a solid position in education there, they pay disproportionately well for education. So you can live well. And I think for me, it wasn't so much maybe Bogota itself, but the opportunity to see Colombia as a country because the different the, the different regions, the nature that's there is 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 really beyond compare. You know, one thing I I, I sometimes say in, in in my courses when I, you know, when I'm talking to people, even in the uh, the beginning on the first day of our seminars, you know, every place that I've been, I've learned something about the place and I've learned something about myself. And I think that even the places that I didn't enjoy as much, the places that I don't think I would go and live again, I don't regret having gone to because you learn something about that part of the world and those people. And you learn something about yourself from having been there and knowing what does and doesn't work for you. And so I don't know. I mean, yeah, I've, including this country, I've taught in eight countries and I have a feeling there might be one or two more left if I can, if I can swing it. Um, I don't know what those two, one or two might be yet. Um, but I think it's just, you know, it's, it's an adventure that you can have in a different way at a different stage of life. You know, each, each country is unique, but each stage of life that you're going to these countries in is also unique for, for you. You know, I've been in some places that, that people really want to go to as tourists. And I've had the good fortune of being able to live there. And I think that's a, a you know, totally different experience again, than being a tourist, but 
I don't know if that answers the question or if that answers the question. Yeah, yeah for sure. I'm just question. curious. Um, you know, Japan is a, still yeah. a very popular choice for a lot of yeah. uh, course yeah. graduates. What are some of the highlights of living in Tokyo, would you say? Tokyo is overwhelming. I mean, I'm, I mean, overwhelming in a good way. It's a massive sensory overload, but because it's perfectly safe, I mean, street crime is, is literally non-existent in Japan, especially for foreigners. So it's this weird kind of dichotomy because the level of English, at least when I was there in 1998, 1999, the general sort of ambient level of English was pretty low. And I don't think that that is improved. I was back in 2011. But my point in saying this is that it has the potential to be like super alienating. However, because it's super safe, there's no risk. So it's this wonderful experience where, you know, I think Tokyo is, has been 25 years in the future for the last 50 years. There's a reason why like Blade Runner was, you know, modeled after Tokyo, because it already looked like that when I was there in 1998. But basically you have this, this fascinating sort of juxtaposition of these super, super hyper modern cities and also kind of untouched countryside that might be a 90 minute train ride away. It can be like in the Studio Ghibli movie. Yes, I mean, it is. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, if you are familiar with like Japanese cinema, it's like, you're like, oh my goodness, all this magical realism. No, it's actually like that. That's what it literally like looks like and and is like. So having an urban Japanese living experience is fascinating. And having having a rural Japanese living experience could also be fascinating. I went with one of the big um, franchise schools. This was long before TESOL certification was was a default sort of need in the field. I mean, in the 90s, it was basically if you're a native speaker and you have the passport, like you could go. And they kind of put me in between. They put me like an hour outside of Tokyo because I had said I wanted to be in the Tokyo region. And that was a little bit, I would say, if I had been placed in a rural area without a word of Japanese, and at a time in the 90s where the internet wasn't really, there was no FaceTime, there was no social media, there was no YouTube, like it would have been overwhelming for me personally even though it would have been safe. So being in a, in a sort of in-between place was okay. I will say though, having been in the field for 25 years, I, I noticed, especially amongst a lot of the younger teachers and the newer teachers, it seems as though South Korea is now kind of occupying culturally um, and, and sort of aspirationally a place that Japan occupied for my generation of teachers. You know, Korea, uh, I was in Korea later on in my career, I was in Korea as a teacher trainer. So my role was different. And I think Seoul and Tokyo have a lot of similarities. And for me, you know, Tokyo kind of being my first exposure to that type of Southeast Asian kind of massive urban megapolis kind of thing. I always had a sort of special place in my heart for Tokyo, but Seoul has, has a huge amount to offer also. And I've noticed that more and more of our students are coming in interested in going to Korea as well. And with a real genuine interest in Korean language and television and music, the K-pop, in a way that of my teaching generation, it was Japan. Um, and, and, I, and I think, you know, getting back to sort of the, the benefits of, of Japan, though, I think that when we imagine Japan, we probably picture, you know, a, a train that's so crowded that there's a guy hired to push people into it wearing gloves, which is a real thing. But really, Japan is also amazing, amazing nature that is right there. I mean, I climbed Mount Fuji. Um, I spent some time on some of the islands. I was in Hokkaido hiking there. That's where I really, I really like hiking now. And I, I'm pretty certain that Japan was what made me like hiking because it was a sort of necessary escape on the weekends from Tokyo. Like, oh, I can go to a mountain. Like, what is this? I never did. It was definitely like that for me, all the national parks and beautiful. Yeah, and and you're like, it's just right there. You can just get there. You know, you don't need a car. And so that was, you know, those were some wonderful experiences. I got 
I got chased out of a mountain by monkeys once. That was really fascinating. That was that. Yeah, that could have gone really bad. That they, I, I started taking pictures and they didn't like that. I don't know. And they and and Japanese people very nice. Japanese monkeys maybe not. You can't really can't really negotiate in the same way. And I remember that. I, I wish that I had a video of that, but this was pre smartphones, pre GoPro. So you have to believe me. But um, I think Japan and Korea have that in common, sort of being very foreign cultures, but yet also very user friendly because of the level of safety. And, and, and I think uh, obviously, you know, you know, between Japan and Korea for, for newer teachers, I mean, Korea has a huge advantage of being able to save a lot more money because the cost of living is so much lower. But I mean, it's the sort of thing that you could start in one and then go to the other. I mean, that's also, you know, a, a possible path. But yeah, Japan for me has a, has a very nostalgic sort of place um, simply because it was the first time I set foot in a, in a classroom. And it was when I also when I realized that I kind of like doing this. So, you know, I saw an ad in a newspaper, which is the way in the, in the last century, the way people advertise for jobs. Um, and I ended up, it said, would you like to teach ESL in Japan? That was the headline. And I was like, well, I don't know what else I'm doing. And I think that Japanese students are certainly polite, certainly, you know, I mean, a little bit, of course, shy, maybe not, you know, the, the, the most garrulous of students, you know, relative to other nations, but it's an easy place to start working because I think they, they make it easy for you. Um, so I'm glad I started there and then went from that to the other extreme, which was Spain, where the students never stopped talking. Um, so <laughs> it went from, please, someone, you know, come on, let's do a dialogue to like, OK, OK, we, we, enough. <laughs> like, I have to teach. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's Japan is a it's a fascinating country. It's a world into itself and it always will be, regardless of how how integrated the world becomes, it's still, it's, it's always going to be an island, literally and metaphorically. So yeah, I mean, I, I'd recommend it if you can get there. Now, Iraq is an interesting choice. It's probably yes. not something that would come to most people's minds when they're thinking no. about teaching ESL. Um, yes. Were you there? You know, it's like, I'm trying to think what's a, what's a diplomatic metaphor. Like, <laughs> um, the thing is, I was curious about the Middle East. And obviously there are more common destinations in the Middle East. But the position I was maybe looking for in the Emirates didn't materialize. Some people go to Saudi, but I, I would say, you know, personally as a non-Muslim, I've heard that Saudi's a little difficult. You know, it's a little difficult when you're not teaching because, you know, you're only teaching 20 hours a week and that leaves you with 140 something hours, you know, to not be in the classroom, right? Um, and I, I found an ad for an American university in the Kurdish region of Iraq. And I was just really curious. If you spend time in this field, you will meet people in this field and you swap stories of, you know, I've been to this and this and this. What do you got? Right. It's that kind of feeling. And I didn't know anyone who had been in Iraq. And I, I was like, you know, for my for my eighth country, I'm like, let's let's see what this is like. And in the interview process, the, the people who interviewed me, the, you know, it was mostly a foreign it was mostly foreign teachers. And so I was able to really ask them some questions that that you might not be able to ask if the person interviewing you was a local. And so. It didn't seem as isolating. It didn't seem as, you know, as, as alienating as a position in Iraq might be. Now, mind you, I wasn't in Baghdad. You know, I mean, I, I was in a region which was relatively safe. And it was unique because the classrooms are co-ed. And for the Middle East, that's very anomalous. You know, I mean, there were male and female teachers teaching male and female students. And it was, it was an interesting experience. I will say, though, uh, that there was still a lot of downtime. And what I mean is when you're not teaching it was fairly limited what you were able to do. And I mean, like everywhere else, I'm, I'm happy that I went. 
it was fascinating to get there. I got to see some the, the regions that were safe enough to travel to. We were able to sort of drive out and see, you know, a few places that a lot of people don't get a chance to to see. Um, but I will say that if you if you are thinking about going to the Middle East, I think you have to be prepared for what it means to sort of be, you know, in your apartment a lot of the time when you're not working. <laughs> it was sort of limiting in what there was socially to do. There were malls, there were movies, uh, and there were coffee shops, but it wasn't really, um, you know, if you're looking for concerts and cultural events, it's hard. It's it's hard to be, to, to, to get in there. And it's not only a language barrier. It's just in a region where, frankly, there's been a lot of war. There's been a lot of, a lot of you know, a lot of periods where it's a perpetual sort of state of rebuilding for various reasons and for the fault of various actors. It's hard. It's, you, you don't, you don't get the same sort of, you know, it, you, you get an interesting experience, certainly, but how long do you want to have that experience? You know, for me, I did my contract and I left and it was fine. I saved a lot of money. I got to see Jordan on vacation, which was really excellent. But yeah, it's a, it's a different type of location. That being said, I think that if you were, for example, part of a couple, I think the, the dynamics might be entirely different. Going to a country like that with a partner would probably make it a lot easier because if not, you're kind of just like, well, you're just hanging out with other teachers who you're working with also, and it's the same people. It's like a biodome sort of experiment, you know? It's like, you will be with these 18 people for, it's like a reality show without <laughs> without recording it, yes. And you can't vote anyone off. So it was kind of, it was a little heavy in that sense. I still have a few friends from there, but you know, it's sort of like the first meeting of the semester, you're like, these are the people who could be your friends for the next 12 months. <laughs> There's no choice at all. It's like, okay, you can hang out with this guy or that girl or that dude, and that's it. So I'm glad that I did it. It is it is fun to sort of have it on the CV. I still have my my Iraq residence card, which I will whip out in a bar sometimes to be like, oh yeah, look at this. You know, like no one has no one has that one. I mean, so it's kind of it was it was an interesting it was an interesting experience um, for a season, let's say. So judging from your CV, you haven't had much trouble landing jobs over the years. Uh, what would you say is the best piece of advice you can give a job seeker in terms of interviewing? What should people be doing to convince the school they're going to be a good fit for the job? You know, one thing that I, I enjoy about a lot of interviews in this field is that they're sort of, they're not so heavy on the kind of box ticking questions that a lot of times in like an American, in a North American workplace, you know, where do you see yourself in five years or tell me about a time when you learn from a mistake, those sorts of questions where cookie cutter questions that expect a cookie cutter answer. But I find that if you are going if you're going to move to the, to the country of the person who's interviewing you, or at the very least, the country in which the person who's interviewing you is living, you know, you have to express, you have to articulate why you want to be there. And it can be, it doesn't always have to be teaching related. I think displaying genuine enthusiasm for where you're going, having a reason why you want to go there. And it can be something as simple as I'm fascinated by the language. I'm fascinated by the culture. I, you know, I, I love the food. It's a stupid, I love the, it's great food especially if the interviewer is from the country, because people love to hear nice things about their country, <laughs> especially from a foreigner, especially from a foreigner. One thing that I would say, and again, this is not something I thought about for years, probably. If the interview is going well, ask them what materials they use in their classes. Say something to the effect of, you know, what book series do you use in your school? Because maybe I'll, I'll get I'll get a couple of copies of them so I can get, you know, get started on preparing. If you say that, oh my, it's 
but there's there is a sort of trope of like the ESL kind of cowboy, like I'm just going in because I speak English and I'm going to do this for a while and I don't really care about the job. I think it's harder to get away with that now. A lot of these jobs have gotten a lot more competitive. So you really have to show that you have a reason why you want to be there. And that even if and especially if you don't have teaching experience, you're going to tell them what you're going to do to compensate for your lack of teaching experience. So do a little research about websites that you might use for materials. And when I interview, I mean, my current position now, I have at times I have interviewed for new teachers for, you know, working in my university here in New York. And I always ask teachers, what materials do you use? Where do you go for lesson materials? And you would be shocked at the amount of people who have 15 years on their resume and they don't have a concrete answer to that question. Because if you've been teaching for a while and you like it, don't tell me you make all your own materials because you don't. So if you're just like randomly kind of willy nilly looking at, oh, I use that or that. Like, no, I mean, I feel passionately about some of the materials that I use. And I'll tell you, this is a great website. You should use this website. Because if you express interest in the job, you know, a concrete interest, like, hey, I want to be a teacher. And, and I'm going to show you what I mean by that. Um, a lot of jobs will ask for a lesson plan and you might have to do a demo or walk them through the lesson plan. And that's another, you know, that's another area for you to, you know, to show that you know what you're doing and that you've thought about it. But sometimes there is no pre-interview test. So I think it's that. It's just specific, showing specific interest in the place and in the job of teacher. Look at their website. Look at their Facebook page. Look at their Instagram. Ask them about, you know, something about, oh, I looked on Google Earth. Like, you're near this. Like, have you been? Anything that shows that you're like, yeah, it's not just like, oh, yeah, I want to I wanna go to Taiwan. Okay, this school's in Taiwan. Now let's go. I think a lot of people do that in interviews. And they just think it's going to be easy to get the job because I have the right profile but show them that you that you looked at where they are and who they are and that'll come out i think maybe this is not even something you're yeah. you're conscious of uh, but you're demonstrating it in spades is be energetic yeah oh be sure interesting be of interested course. in the position yes. yeah see, uh, yeah. just be like brian be yeah, well, energetic <laughs> be well, fun that's it in, in this one very specific arena that might be good advice but yes i mean I, I i can't imagine i hope that there's not a lot of mopey people going into interviews but i guess there are but i also think that it's important to realize and i tell this to all of my students go into these interviews with confidence because if they want to interview you it's because they saw something in your resume that makes them think that at least in theory you should be suitable for the job it's not like, I don't know how it is, you know, in, in Canada as much, but in the United States, there's a lot of people working in HR whose job is just to interview people, like to keep them busy. So they're, they'll interview 40 people for one position that's not even starting yet. In ESL, EFL, that, I don't think that's the case. If they're interviewing for jobs, that's because they have jobs. So it doesn't mean that it's a guarantee, but go into the interview sort of comfortable and confident in the knowledge that if they're giving you an interview, it's not just to fill out the 10 slots that they needed to, to do. You know, I've only really worked in education, but I know from friends in the U.S. who have worked in other fields, it can get very deflating in the, in the job search because you can just go to dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews and there's no job there. But that's not the case with this. So I think having that confidence, that little bit like, yeah, you know, like it's my job to lose. I think that's important, too. What about reviewing the contracts? Do you have any... Uh, advice there? Any red flags people should look I out mean, for? With entry-level jobs, there's not a whole lot that's negotiable. But 95% of what's in a contract is kind of like, it's boilerplate. They didn't make it for you. That's the contract they give to teachers doing your role. So it's kind of a take it or leave it proposition. 
And also one thing is that you're most likely going to have to sign two copies of any contract, and one of them is going to be in the local language. That's the contract that's most likely going to get filed with whatever Ministry of Labor in that country collects such things. So you have to feel comfortable with signing a contract in a language that you probably can't read. I think this is why it's good to go through a reputable school, you know, the schools that Oxford recommends through the job placement, for example, as opposed to going out on your own. I have had situations where the hours of a job, you know, one, one job that I took, and this was not my first job at all. It was, it was presented to me as a nine to five. And between the time when I got hired and the time that I actually got there, they found out that their client base was more in the evenings. And when I got there, they were like, it's actually going to be one to nine. And I was like, well, I don't want to work one to nine. You know, I like to wake up early and I like to finish at five. And they were like, well, this is what the job is. So at that point, what, what do you do? I mean, you can say, screw you, I'm going home. Or you can do it. An expensive proposition. Right. I mean, that's the thing. Or you can do it. I mean, I already, right. I already had given up my apartment where I did before and things like that. So, you know, I think more than, more than contract red flags, I think it's probably valid to just keep in mind that the contracts are a lot more malleable in a lot of the world. And you, you kind of just have to accept that. It's just part and parcel of the experience. Of course, we can get in touch with Oxford. You know, we know more or less, you know, what might or might not be suspicious in a given place. But I think that the, the problems that you're most likely to encounter are things that come up after the fact, as opposed to in the signing stage of things, unfortunately. Fair, but I mean, fair. but it's part, it's part of it. I mean, it's part of the adventure. Um, going back to our course specifically. Yeah. Uh, You've gone through the transition with us from being solely in-person classes, the pivot to Zoom. Yeah. Um, do you think that there are any benefits to this type of virtual classroom environment? And yeah. is it a detriment to future teachers? I think there are some benefits that I might have foreseen and some that I hadn't. I taught the courses in New York City for on and off between international positions for you know 14 years, from 2006 up to COVID. And I assume it's quite the same in most of the metropolitan areas where we offer these courses. Not everybody lives close. I used to have people in my courses in Manhattan who lived in another borough, of course, but who also lived in New Jersey, who lived in Connecticut, who lived in Pennsylvania, because sometimes they just didn't live near a place where Oxford was giving the course. So you're talking about saving hours a day. So the convenience is off the charts. I mean, but that's an, that's an easy benefit to, to think about, okay? In terms of like the benefits that I maybe hadn't foreseen, you know, the pandemic didn't create online education, but it certainly ex it contributed to its exponential growth. Knowing how to teach online is part of teaching now. You know, a lot of people take these courses and they will tell me on the, on the first morning, I'm not good with tech. And what I say now, it sounds a little harsh, but it's just being honest. You can't not be good with tech anymore. You have to be at least minimally capable to share a screen to, to, send, to send a document through the feature on Zoom. But these are not things that take a lot of training. They are not things that any person can't handle. And I'm not saying you have to be, you know, a PowerPoint whiz or whatever. You know, some, some of these technologies are frankly overrated in their sort of utility. But most of the interviews for international positions are online. Most of them require a demo lesson. How are you gonna teach that demo lesson? On Zoom or an equivalent program. So inadvertently, and I don't know that anyone at Oxford really thought about this at the beginning of, of our move to, to, to Zoom. Inadvertently, we're providing a type of job training that will help you get the job, not only do the job. You know, There are hybrid positions. I've been teaching on Zoom now with Oxford for over three years. A lot of our current students um, want online positions. I've adjusted my course slightly 
to reflect that, I, I do a little I, I do a little module on what are some considerations to keep in mind in the virtual classroom versus the face-to-face -face classroom. I share some resources that I think are, are super helpful for online teaching as opposed to you know classroom teaching. And I, I try to get students to, to be prepared, but everyone in my Oxford courses has multiple times where they're able to teach. And so you're learning how to use Zoom, which you will be using at the very least for your interview, right? So I think it's, a, it's another competency and that's an advantage of the course. But I think that it, in, in some ways, like something as simple as like sharing a screen, because I, I often show people, you know, where to look for things online. It's actually easier when everybody's looking in the same direction. A lot of new teachers, obviously, understandably, are nervous. I think you will be somewhat less nervous having to teach a demo lesson in your house than you might be standing in front of a room of 15 or 20 people. And I think that's also a slight advantage. You know, I mean, granted, eventually, as a teacher, you're going to have to get in front of that room. But I think for some of the people who would be super nervous, they are a little bit less nervous because they can relax. They can, they're sitting down. They can pet their cat while they're doing their lesson, whatever. And I think that's, I think those are sort you know, I think it, it can help us to get over those maybe first class jitters as well. Um, disadvantage, eight hours is a long time spent in front of a computer. I mean, it is. Some of us spend, you know, weeks in front of a computer. But it was a long class. In, in the classroom, and it's a long class online. That hasn't changed. There are certain activities, but not many. There are certain activities that, that don't work the same way in an online classroom. But I teach 90, 95% the same curriculum that I was teaching before the pandemic. I'm using 95% the same materials, talking about the same principles. We're just looking at it, you know, on a different, in a different modality. And I'm sure, you know, we always, you know, we, we promote this, that this is not an online course. This is a course that's being taught online. Yeah. And so your certificate doesn't say that it was an online class. It's not an asynchronous class. And I think that's a word that some people are not necessarily familiar with. But an asynchronous class, you know, of course, means it's not taught in real time. And there are some providers out there of Tesla certification that, you know, you pay them some money and they'll send you a package of materials and you kind of watch or read those materials and then you write some answers and you send it back. For one schools often will say they don't accept that as certification. And for two, it's like, this is a learn by doing experience. I mean, yes, we read, of course, you know, there's materials to look at, but you learn how to teach by teaching, you know, and by watching. I mean, I try to set an example when I'm doing my Oxford courses of the type of teacher that I want my students to be. So to, to think about doing this, you know, asynchronously, even if it's cheaper, it's a waste. It's just a waste. You're not going to get much from it. And, and a potential employer might not even recognize it. There's only so much you can read about lesson planning without actually planning a lesson and then teaching it. I mean, if you want to learn how to, I mean, I can give you a cookbook, but if you've never been in a kitchen, you can't tell me that you know how to make those dishes. I mean, so yeah, I mean, you know, we can, we can talk about theory all day, but you got to do it. So I think you, we are giving people the same opportunity to do it that we, that we do when we teach these classes face-to-face. -face. All right. One more question that we always like to ask our guests who have taught abroad okay. is what advice would you have for people who are maybe on the fence about getting Tesla certified, wondering if it's really worth their time and money? Get off the fence. It's, it's very uncomfortable on the fence. <laughs> no, um, like I, I mentioned before, when I started in this field, uh, Tesla certification was by no means like an, almost like a default requirement. It, it is. I mean, if you go on one of the common job boards, just click around. And if you click on, on 10 job ads, seven or eight of them, if not more, will say that Tesla certification is either required or recommended. So that's the practical side of it. But also, it would be nice to know a little bit about what you're supposed to be doing when you start this job, even if Tesla certification were not required. 
I didn't have it when I went to Japan. And I had no idea what I was doing when I got in the classroom. The first few months were like panic and like flop sweat and like, what am I? Oh my God. Anyway, thankfully, Japanese people are very forgiving and very polite, but I had no idea what I was doing. Now, in six days of this course, plus the online module, can we get you to a point where you're a master teacher? Of course not. But in six days of a course, we can get you to a point where you at least know what you should be doing. And that's a lot more than people who don't do the training. And the other thing, you know, if you're considering moving to another country to do a job, it's probably a good idea if you see a little bit about what that job is and whether or not you really want to do it. Because a lot of our students have not ever taught before, and that's fine. This course is designed for people who don't have experience, right? It's, it's, it's necessary for, you know, for, for being an attractive candidate. <clears throat> it will give you the basics. And also, it might weed out, I mean, in a self-selecting way, you know, it might, it might help you to avoid going into something that's not for you. And I mean, hopefully that's not the case. I mean, hopefully, you know, most of the people that take our courses want to be teachers and go on to be teachers and have a, have a, have a good time with it. But on the off chance that you, you know, are really not familiar with what this field involves, um, I know I'm very direct about what's good and bad about teaching in my seminars. And I think the other instructors I've spoken with for Oxford, I, I think they're, you know, they're the same. And we, we're, you know, we don't want to gloss it over. You know, it's not, it's not all fun and adventures all the time, you know? So I think it's important to hear those things and then maybe reevaluate if you are on the fence about whether or not you want to go. I think this is a good first step. I mean, these courses are a little sample of what you could hope to expect from teaching. So I think it's a, in that case, I think it's a, it's a really useful investment on various levels, regardless of what you end up doing after you take the, after you take the course. All right. Thank you so yeah. much for that okay. great insight. Uh, okay. It was it was awesome having you on and hearing all your thoughts about teaching abroad and why the course live via Zoom is a great option to consider. No problem. Thank you, guys. Yeah, and that's what I, you know, I'll say this in closing, just what I say to most of my students in closing. Everyone says, you know, you regret the things, more often you regret the things you did not do than the things you did do. And as I said at the beginning of this interview, there were some countries that I went to that I wouldn't go back to, but I don't regret having gone. I learned something about the country and its people, and I learned something about myself. And so you might, you, you know, you might enter into this field and try it out for six months and say, it's not for me. You might enter into this field and try it out for a year and say, I like this field, but not this country, right? Or vice versa. But the thing is, whatever the end result is, you are going to regret not doing this more than doing it. So take that with you when you decide whether or not you want to actually make this next step. And I think in the end, the decision is pretty easy. Sage advice. And end of, so end of sermon. That's it. No problem, guys. All right. See ya. Before we go, we do have a little job placement update for those job seekers who may be listening. Yes, for those looking to teach in Japan, just remember that the application and visa process can be quite lengthy. We do typically recommend applying about six months before you want to go. And we in Job Placement do have access to jobs at a number of chain language schools across the country, including an especially exciting new option for our course graduates, which involves teaching adult students one-on-one. -on -one. So for those looking to teach adult students in Asia, Japan uh, might be a good one to consider. Get in touch with your job placement advisor to find out more about those. And for those well-qualified and experienced teachers looking for a K-12 teaching job, we also work with an international school in Nagoya that has a few openings each spring and often fall semester as well. 
you can actually watch a really cool day in the life video of one of uh, the teachers there that is featured on our Oxford Seminars Instagram channel. Thanks as always for tuning into the Teaching Abroad pod. We're aiming to release new episodes monthly for the foreseeable future. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and share with your friends. Remember, you can find us on YouTube, Spotify, and your podcasting app of choice. If you have any great ideas that you'd like to share, please message us on Instagram or email us at teachingabroadpod at oxfordseminars.com. Thank you. See you next time. See ya.